And as folks are getting settled, let me remind you of what's uh, coming up and what we're doing today in uh, this hour. But the first thing I want to remind you of is today's your last day to get tickets for Friday's Mud Hens game. So if you haven't done that yet, you can get those at the Resource Center. That's this back door across the hallway. And that's where you purchase the Mud Hens tickets. you got to get them today if you're planning on going on Friday. In this hour... Through the summer, we don't have an outreach series like we do in the fall, at the beginning of the year, and just after Easter. In the summer, we just have uh, miscellaneous uh, lessons and series because the summer is useless, frankly, in terms of outreach because people are on vacations and those kinds of things. And so this summer, we've had a, a variety of things, but the most recent was six weeks of Dr. Combs teaching on the holiness movement. And we appreciate Dr. Combs' uh, study scholarship uh, that he's had for many years that he put into that to inform us about where a lot of the strains of church life that many of us are familiar with have come from and how we've been affected for good or ill uh, by those. So I appreciate Dr. Combs doing that. Now, if you were here for any of those six weeks, you know that each week he passed out, a, he had a handout. It was several pages long and it had pictures in it. And I, I have, uh, my handouts have no pictures. Uh, not only do my handouts have no pictures, I don't have any handouts. So, so you're just going to have to listen to me as best you can. And what we're going to be talking about today is just cur- a current event, and that is the election coming up, and a bit of a biblical perspective uh, for us on how we should view uh, where things are in terms of our choices for the election. So we're going to do that today. Next week, we have a guest speaker. Jeremy Pitsley is our missionary to Kenya. He is going to be here and give us an update about the Lord's work there. So that will be during this hour next week. Two weeks from today, I will do the second of two of these current events presentations. And that one will be on race relations and what the Bible would teach us about that. Because, of course, that's a very current and hot topic also. So the next three weeks will be today on the election. Next week, our missionary. Two weeks on race relations. And three weeks from today, we start the Parenting with Purpose series. And we encourage all of you who have parents, even some of you grandparents who might want to help your kids raise your grandkids uh, or and, and advise them as they allow you then I'd encourage you to take that. But uh, we'll have a second class for those of you not in the parenting class that I'll mention in a moment. But for the parenting class, we have invitations that are printed up and they're out on the information desk in the lobby. So before you leave today and over the next few weeks, take a handful of those and pass those out to coworkers and friends and neighbors. And I encourage you to come yourself, but also to invite someone to come as well. And we'll have a 10-week Parenting with Purpose series. For those of you that are not going to be in the parenting series, uh, Dr. Combs is going to be teaching a class through the book of 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians. And that will start out, that class will start out in the teen area, that's that way, the south end of the building, the first week. And depending on how many people are in there, uh, then it may stay there because that's a larger area. If uh, there are not so many people that you cannot fit in one of our classrooms, then the following week we will relocate that to classroom one or two. But that first week we'll start out there just uh, so we can get a handle on how many people will be in there. The, uh, the parenting folks will be in here, and then uh, those of you taking the Second Corinthians class will be with Dr. Combs in the teen area at the south end of the building. All right, everybody good on that? It's an election year, presidential election year. 
And these two candidates for the major parties in Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are hands down the worst two candidates in my lifetime. And perhaps ever, but certainly in my, in my lifetime. So let me talk a little bit about why I could make a statement like that. They're that bad. And the choice is that bad. In doing this, I'm going to mention some things that have happened in Hillary Clinton's career and about Donald Trump. And I don't know how to avoid making editorial comment about that. I'll try to just be as factual as I can. I hope that I don't unnecessarily offend uh, anyone, but uh, just know that I'm, I, everything that I say, that I, that I declare, is factual. Everything that I will declare is factual. And then there'll be my opinion interspersed every now and then as well. You can ignore the opinion, but on the facts, I'm going to lay some of those out for you. So I'll give some about Hillary Clinton, and I'll spend a little more time on, on Donald Trump, and I'll explain why. With regard to Hillary Clinton, uh, her history and her first coming into any kind of public uh, prominence goes back to the early 1970s and the Senate Watergate Committee. Some of you know what that is, but in 1973, for the summer of 73, there was a select committee in the U.S. Senate that was uh, select senators from both parties that sat on a committee to investigate the goings-on in Watergate. That's the Nixon administration and the Watergate break-in of the Democratic National Committee headquarters there and all that unraveled out of what they found out of that. And Hillary Clinton was part of the staff of the Democratic uh, senatorial staff, and she was a young lawyer on that staff. And she gained uh, great experience uh, in that, undoubtedly. And one of the experiences that many people believe she gained out of that was the need to be very secretive in what you do if you're in a position of power. And that has come to the fore uh, more recently in her own career now. But then after that, uh, she, uh, she was married to Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton became the uh, governor of Arkansas, and so she was the first lady of Arkansas. And one of the things that makes her a, a very uh, bad candidate in my mind is her duplicity about uh, women's issues and the protection of women, uh, particularly when it comes to the issue of, of rape. Her husband uh, has been accused, and this is an opinion, credibly accused as governor of Arkansas of raping at least one woman, accosting several, and unwanted advances over the life of his career. And when I say the duplicity of Hillary Clinton with regard to women's rights, one of the things that uh, those who are interested in protecting women's rights say is, you are believed. We believe you when you make a claim. So don't be afraid to come and make a claim because we believe you. In fact, up until recently, that very claim was on Hillary Clinton's presidential website. We believe you. She's taken that down. And one of the reasons she's taken it down is because she has exposure here, great exposure. Because her husband has been involved in these kinds of nefarious activities with women 
And Hillary Clinton has said nothing. And in effect, in, again, this is an opinion, my, has been an enabler. So going back to her time as the First Lady of Arkansas, some of the things that she has turned a blind eye to and continue to turn the blind eye to into the presidency of her husband uh, uh, call into question the sincerity of one of the hallmark things that she stands for, and that is, and that is women's, women's rights. In addition, Hillary Clinton has been involved in a number of scandals, bunches of scandals over the years. Somehow in the late 70s, she has no investment experience, none, zero. But she was able to make a 100%, uh, a 400% profit on an investment in cattle futures. And uh, no one else has ever been able to do what she did. But she was somehow able to, to pull that off, and supposedly without any inside, inside information. But that's small potatoes compared to other things that she and her husband were involved in in uh, Arkansas. Whitewater, some of you know what that is. So there's the Whitewater Affair and all of the related scandals that go with that that I don't have time and you don't have the interest in me going into. But uh, that was investigated for many, many, many years and it had a number of tentacles that went with it. But one of the central issues... Uh, at play in that was work that Hillary Clinton did as an attorney at a law firm in Little Rock called the Rose Law Firm. And did she do work for this uh, Madison Guarantee Trust, which financed the Whitewater land deal and all of that? And her claim was, no, I didn't. I didn't do any work on that. Well, they subpoenaed the billing records, and the billing records came up missing. We can't find the billing records. Nobody can find the billing records. And then lo and behold, years later, when the Clintons are in the White House, the billing records show up on a conference table in a room in the White House. A maid found them and turned them over and showed that Hillary, in fact, had done work on this thing that she claimed she had not. And how the missing billing records came to be in the White House has remained a mystery, but uh, Hillary was at the, the center of that. Her position on moral issues is unacceptable to a, uh, a Bible-believing Christian. She is radically pro-abortion, radically pro-abortion, at any stage of development. She is against laws prohibiting partial birth abortion. That's how radical her position is. She is in favor of same-sex same sex marriage. So her positions just on those issues alone are unacceptable to a Bible-believing Christian. But one of the worst things more recently that uh, Hillary Clinton has done, in, in my view, is with regard to something called the Benghazi Affair, and some of you know what that is, but Benghazi is a city in Libya. And we had, as we do in most countries in the world, we have a, uh, an embassy or a consulate where our people work there and they communicate on behalf of the U.S. government uh, to the officials in that government. And Christopher Stevens was our ambassador there, our representative there. 
And he and uh, three others were killed, uh, murdered, on September 11th of 2012. Now, does September 11th ring a bell for anybody? (laughs) So, you know, you, you would think you would be on high alert for that. There were a lot of signals that there was trouble coming on September 11th. And sure enough, that trouble came and four of our people were were killed. Now, there are all kinds of, there was a whole investigation in Congress about whether or not help that should have been given to protect those four uh, was not given, whether or not help could have come that very night in time had there not been orders to stand down. I'm not commenting on any of that. Uh, but here's what I am commenting on, and this is the worst piece of it to me. Hillary Clinton went through a line of mourners at the funerals uh, or at the delivery of the bodies for these uh, four Americans who were brought from Libya back to the United States. And on the arrival of the plane and those bodies, she met with the parents of those who had fallen, the relatives of those who had fallen. And she went through a line and shook their hands. And according to those people, now there is no audio, of this. But according to those people, she told them, we are going to get the people who produced that video that caused this, uh, this, uh, assassin- these assassinations in Benghazi. The video. Now, do you all remember the video? Some dude in California made a homemade video that was anti-Islam. And the State Department and the National uh, Security Agency immediately uh, developed talking points to blame that video for this spontaneous uprising that it occurred in Benghazi. And so there's just a spontaneous uprising because of this video, and we're going to get the people who, who did this. Just this mob shows up because they're angry about this video. So relatives who are grieving, we're going to get that guy. And just a few hours later, and this is under oath, this is testimony before the Senate, uh, before the Congressional Benghazi Committee. Uh, She told her daughter just a few hours later that this was an organized terrorist group that did this. An organized terrorist group having nothing to do with the, the video. And she also called an ambassador from another country and told him, that this was because of an organized terrorist group that had planned this attack, and that's why they had mortar shells and all of the uh, weaponry that they had to be able to pull this off. So I'm just going to say very boldly here that Hillary Clinton lied directly to the face of the relatives of these people who lost their loved ones in Benghazi. And so for me, I can have no respect for a commander-in-chief who would do that. And then lastly, and there's a lot more that could be said, but lastly, there are the the whole email thing of more recent infamy. And remember the whole Watergate and one of the lessons learned is be secretive. So one of the things that uh, Secretary of State Clinton did when she became Secretary of State was install her own server in her own residence in New York and established her own email address, uh, clintonmail.com, and 
on our own server unprotected. And that unprotected server was hacked. And to this day, we don't know who has what she put on that server. And that violated a form, a document that every State Department and every government employee, for that matter, but certainly State Department employees, have to sign that talks about how they will handle government information, in particular, classified information. So she violated that on the server, and the FBI director a month ago, if you saw that 12-minute presentation that he made, he laid out a bill of particulars that was indictable. And then at the end, I mean, if you heard it, as I was hearing it, I'm going, he's going to indict her. He's going to recommend that she be indicted. And then at the end, he said, but we're not going to indict her. And he gave reasons, and I'm not questioning the integrity of James Comey, the FBI director, but that was a damning list of particulars that he laid out for what she did. Which is another reason that given even all of her experience as a former first lady, a U.S. senator from New York, and a secretary of state, uh, I am still very concerned about her and national security. And here we are in August. We got until November till the election occurs. But the truth is we don't know who has these emails. <laughs> you know, the Democratic National Committee had their... Uh, had their uh, convention a few weeks ago, and days before the convention, a bunch of emails came out that had been hacked from them and were very embarrassing emails, so embarrassing that the uh, chairman of the Democratic National Committee had to resign because of the things that were found in those emails. So it will be interesting to see if other emails show up. And I'm not predicting that. I have no earthly idea. But just you heard it here. A hundredth, okay? So I'm one of the zillionth people to say, just look out, there's other emails out there and somebody's got them. All right, that's Hillary Clinton. Donald Trump. I've never watched The Apprentice. I've never watched that. But I understand he had a show called The Apprentice and I don't, I don't even know the premise of the whole thing, but I know that You're Fired came out of that, Right? All right. So a lot of people, all they know about Donald Trump is seeing him on TV. And one of the reasons he's been able to garner as much support as he has is because he's a TV guy and we're all TV people, unfortunately. But Donald Trump goes back, of course, before The Apprentice. And Donald Trump's mentor was a guy named Roy Cohn. C-O-H-N, Roy Cohn. Now, that name goes all the way back to the 1950s and a, a senator from Wisconsin named Joseph McCarthy. Have you ever heard of the McCarthy era? <laughs> and Joseph McCarthy is infamous for holding hearings in the U.S. Senate and hauling people before these hearings and accusing people with scant evidence often of being communists. And so onerous was this and that uh, President Eisenhower, a Republican, a fellow Republican, denounced Joseph McCarthy for what he was doing. But his right-hand man on that committee was a guy named Roy Cohn. Now, if you just Google Roy Cohn, he's now dead. But if you were to 
Google Roy Cohn and, and read about his career, uh, he was an amazing and nasty, nasty dude. And he learned to take people down by destroying people. Not destroying their arguments, destroying people. There's a whole, there's a whole layout about Donald Trump and his relationship to Roy Cohn and how he learned at the feet of Roy Cohn how to destroy people. Destroy them personally. So that's where he learned what you see. That's where he learned what you saw if you watched the debates. And I'm thinking, as I'm watching those debates, I'm having flashbacks to like fourth grade. We just call each other names. We just make stuff up. I mean, I did that in fourth grade. This guy's running for president. But take him down however you have to take him down. Lying Ted. Little Marco. Low energy Jeb. Crooked Hillary. He called Elizabeth Warren, senator from Massachusetts, Pocahontas. Because she claimed to be of Indian descent and she's not. That's, that one's funny, actually. I think. <laughs> but just make stuff up. Obama is a Muslim. Now, I'm going to stop here for a second because some of you are sitting out there going, yeah, he is a Muslim, right? No, he's not. And you got no proof of that. None. Zero. Nada. Now, you can question his, you can question his foreign policy. Heaven knows I do. You can question whether or not he is tough enough on, on terrorism and he understands the plight of Israel in the midst of hostile nations around them and all that. Heaven knows I, I question that. But you have no proof that he's a Muslim and neither does Donald Trump. None. But he's, but he says it anyway. Or he's not an American. He shouldn't even be president because, you know, you have to be born in America to be a president. And so Donald Trump was one of the, the final birthers out there. You know what I mean when I say birther? Where was he born and where's the birth certificate? And they, there's a fake birth certificate. It's the short form instead of the long form and, and all that. Now listen, guys and gals. If they pulled off, if somebody pulled off that conspiracy... That he was like really born in Kenya, but they just made up that he was born in Hawaii. I mean, this is a serious conspiracy because there are contemporaneous news articles announcing his birth in Hawaii. So you got to get the newspaper editors involved at the time this guy's born. <laughs> so you can pull this off in 2008. He was born in 61. So that's quite a conspiracy there. And I say that tongue-in-cheek because it's not a conspiracy. He was born in Hawaii. But Donald says he's not an American. George W. Bush lied us into war. This is a man running as a Republican. George W. Bush knew about 9-11 in advance. He has mocked publicly... A man with Parkinson's, with the movements, and he's proposed initially that we ban all Muslims 
for a period of time. Then he modified that to banning from certain from certain countries. One of his claims to fame, I mean, those are all claims to infamy, claims to fame, is that he's a businessman and a successful businessman. That, you know, I, I don't know. I haven't seen his tax returns because he's still being audited. So I don't know how successful he is and how uh, how legal all of his business uh, interactions are. I'll assume they are. But I know what his business is. It's gambling. So I don't like his business as a Christian. And I think I think I could, I think I, and I don't zero about business, but I think I could have done okay if I inherited $100 million from my dad. I think I could have found a way to make it. I just think I could have. And a lot of people don't know that, but he inherited $100 million from his father. This is not a rags-to-riches story. He bought the Miss USA pageant. If you're a fan of the Miss USA pageant and the sensuality of all of that, then I think you need to read some more on holiness. His third wife made her living as a sensual model, including nude modeling, including lesbian modeling. He's insulted Mexicans as rapists and murderers. He knows nothing, next to nothing, about foreign policy. Uh, And it's scary how little he knows about foreign policy. As the commander-in-chief, and that's the term that the Constitution gives us for the president, he or she is the commander-in-chief, then they can send our people into harm's way at their command. They're the commander. And you say, but doesn't Congress have to declare war? That's that's the way the framers, I think, envisioned it, (laughs) that there would be a declaration of war, but it hasn't been happening that way for decades. Presidents command and soldiers go. So if he's president, he can send people where he directs. And just as an example of how scary his lack of knowledge is, during one of the debates, he was asked, Mr. Trump, Dr. Carson, that's when Ben Carson was still in, just referenced the single most important job of the president, the command, the control, and the care of our nuclear forces. And he mentioned the triad. The B-52s are older than I am. The missiles are old. The submarines are aging out. It's an executive order. It's a commander-in-chief decision. What's your priority among our nuclear triad? Our nuclear triad. Okay? Now, triad means three, and it means that we've got three ways that we deliver nuclear uh, weapons by land, by sea, and by air. So what's your priority among those? The nuclear triad, Donald Trump. He says, well, first of all, I think we need somebody absolutely that we can trust, who's totally responsible, who really knows what he or she is doing. This is so powerful and so important. All right. And one of the things that I'm frankly most proud of is that in 2003, 2004, I was totally against going into Iraq because you're going to destabilize the Middle East. I called it. I called it very strongly and it was very important. He's still going on the nuclear triad. 
But we have to be extremely vigilant and extremely careful when it comes to nuclear. Nuclear changes the whole ballgame. Frankly, I would have said get out of Syria. Get out if we didn't have the power of weaponry today. The power is so massive that we can't just leave areas that 50 years ago or 75 years ago we wouldn't care. It was hand-to-hand combat. And then he says, the biggest problem in this world today is not President Obama with global warming, which is inconceivable. This is why he's saying the biggest problem we have is, is nuclear, nuclear proliferation, and having some maniac, having some madman go out and get a nuclear weapon. That's in my opinion. It's the single biggest problem that our country faces right now. And then the questioner finally says, but of the three legs of the triad, do you have a priority? And Trump says, I think, I think for me, nuclear is just the power. The devastation is very important to me. That's it. Now, here's the deal. That man has no earthly idea what the nuclear triad is. And he just keeps talking. And unfortunately, we have people in our country who are ill-informed enough that if you talk long enough, it sounds like you know what you're talking about. So, he would be the commander-in-chief, and that's a scary prospect for me. All right. You could go on about Hillary. You could go on about Trump. I've tried to make the case they're both horrible candidates. But what I'm most concerned about is what all of this says about the church and about Christian people. So, they're both lousy candidates. I've been hoping, praying for... Something from out of left field to happen. You know, not anybody to get assassinated. And I I don't mean that in even a joking way at at all. Nothing like that. Uh, but, uh, But something to happen, like someone else enter the race very late. And even though they couldn't win at this late stage, win a state or two or five that would keep either of them from getting 270 electoral votes which means then the election would go to the House of Representatives. But I'm, I'm pretty much giving up on that. So it's Hillary and Trump. Yikes. But what does all this say about the church? Well, one of the things that concerns me greatly is when I see uh, polling data that says that the majority of evang- professing evangelical Christians voted for Donald Trump in the primaries. That's when you that's when you had 16 other choices. You got 16 other choices and the majority of evangelical people vote for that guy? What does that say about the state of the evangelical church? I had a brother in our church write me several months ago about this very issue, the election, and sent me a nice uh, an article, a good article about it as it relates to evangelicals. And I wrote back, and, and here's what I said. Now, I admit this is a rant, but uh, the, the article, in the article, the individual said, evangelicals slipped up by supporting the rise of Trump. And I say it's a bit more than just slipping up. The support for Trump is chickens coming home to roost in the evangelical world. 
A world that is an unbalanced mix of, on the one hand, committed believers who put biblical values above all else. And on the other hand, the vast majority who are pragmatic in their churches, if they attend church at all, and in their politics too. I'm going to go on. But do you, do you understand what I'm saying there? For decades now in evangelical churches, we have been training people and we've been pursuing philosophies of ministry that are strictly pragmatic. What gets it done? And so we've developed those kind of pragmatic people. A Trump rally, I said, is the political equivalent of an Osteen worship service. Both get the crowds because they tell folks what they selfishly want to hear. I can't be surprised that a culture that imbibes narcissism, raunch, and sensuality would vote for a guy who embodies or marries and divorces all three. But I'm deeply saddened that a movement that's supposedly devoted to God and his word has now demonstrated its unfaithfulness in such a clear and stark manner. Evangelicalism has been on a spiritual decline for decades. Its aid in the nomination of Donald Trump removes any doubt if there was any. Now that's what I'm concerned about. What is it that Donald Trump is appealing to in Christian people? When you when you had other choices. Now, I'll conclude with now we got apparently really two choices. That's a different ball game altogether. But when you had 17 people and that guy gets the vote, So it concerns me greatly about the priorities of evangelical professing Christian people. That Liberty University would have Donald Trump in for a rally and then Jerry Falwell Jr. would endorse him for president is of great concern to me. What is it about Donald Trump that appeals to Jerry Falwell Jr.? and the kids that they're training at Liberty University. I'm also concerned about what it may say about the unspoken prejudices that we have. And the way we view people who don't look like us. Now look, friends, there are big policy issues related to immigration and and all sorts of those kinds of things. And So I'm not making a statement about that. But as we develop our policies on that, and as we criticize the government because we don't think they're doing it the right way, let's bear in mind that all the while there are people behind those policies. There are people affected by those policies. And the most important thing to us should always, always, always be the testimony of Jesus, not who's in the White House. How we comport ourselves and how we talk about these issues matters. If we denigrate African Americans, if we denigrate Arab Americans, if we denigrate people who are not Americans, we're not representing Jesus well. And then lastly, I'm concerned about what it means for our priorities, about our prejudices, the support of Trump, and then how worried we are about the election. And I admit to you, I admit to you that I have fretted about this for months. And if not sinfully, 
certainly bordering on sinful worry about it. So when I criticize this, I'm criticizing myself as well. But friends, I and we have put too much stock in political power as Christians. Political power. The Bible teaches that we need to be responsible citizens. We need to be informed. We need to vote. But we do not put our trust in political power. And who's in power in Washington? Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21 in verse 1. In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water. That he, the Lord, channels toward all who please him. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And he directs it as he will. Our concern for power needs to be the power of the sovereign God then. Not who's in power in Washington. Jesus said, my kingdom is what? Not of this world. And yet we, and again myself included, have become so wrapped up in the machinations and the interactions of political power and who can get in and how can we be in. And this would all be foreign to Jesus. My kingdom is not of this world. So what does the Bible tell us to do then for kings and all who are in authority? 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2. Verse 1, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. So pray for all people. And then now, Paul, who writes this, is going to go on to give some examples of groups, subgroups that fit into that all people. So I urge then that Prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority. So the Bible says pray for those in authority. President Obama. Or whoever the president will be in November. Pray for those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. What's my number one priority and concern about whoever's in power in Washington? Here's what it is. That whatever policies they make, it'll allow us to do our thing. Because our thing's the most important thing. The Great Commission, the church, God's work. So pray that for the kings and all those authority that that can happen. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Do you see the priorities there, friends? Those priorities are for the gospel. Those are priorities for the salvation of those Muslims. Those immigrants. 
That's what Paul would be concerned about. And what we're concerned about is who can be in power in order to pull the levers of government in order to create the most advantageous economic situation for us. I'm in favor of advantageous economic situations. (laughs) You know, for myself, for you all, it allows us to give to the Lord's work and see the Lord's work go forward. I'm, I'm, I'm down with all of that. But as you read in Scripture what the priorities of Jesus' first followers were and what God places as the priorities for government and God's people, it's the gospel and it's the mission. That's what we care about. And we pray for this election. We pray for whoever's going to win this election. Pray for our country. Pray for our world. And now in my remaining moments, all right, with all that, you got two lousy candidates. What are you going to do? What do you do with these two lousy candidates? Did I say they're lousy candidates already? Well, see, now you're down to two, not 17 in a primary. And you've got someone who is has no foreign policy experience and who has demonstrated no knowledge about foreign policy. So the idea of Donald Trump being the commander-in-chief is scary. Hillary Clinton is all the other stuff that I said and more. And her position on moral issues is completely unacceptable. Donald Trump claims to be pro-life. Now, the reason I say claims to be pro-life, he's never been pro-life until now. But he says he's pro-life. Donald Trump says that if he's elected president, he will nominate judges to the federal bench and the Supreme Court. That will be conservative judges. And there's a lot involved in what a conservative judge means that I don't have time to go into. But that would generally mean judges who would not have ruled the way the current court has ruled on abortion and same-sex marriage issues. And he even put out a list of, I think it was 13 judges, names of people that he would choose from to nominate for the Supreme Court. Those 13 names, in my opinion, are terrific names. If he were to choose any of those 13, that would be a great thing. So he has he has that advantage. But the truth is, I don't know whether Donald Trump will do anything he says to do, that he'll do. So here's what it comes down to for me. It's lousy candidates, and this is a lousy choice. And sometimes you hear us say, uh, you're just going to have to vote for the lesser of two evils. And one man that I, a theologian that I greatly respect, Wayne Grudem, wrote an article recently, and he said, This choice isn't the lesser of two evils. And he tried to make the case why Donald Trump uh, is a righteous choice. And he did not convince me. Uh, But in that article, he said, Donald Trump's not an evil choice. Well, okay, you define evil the way you want. I've told you the way I define it, okay? But I'm in favor of voting for the lesser of two evils. Because, as someone has said, and I don't know who, 
When you vote for the lesser of two evils, you get less evil. So, so like I'm in favor of less evil. So then I got to figure out who's going to give us less evil. They're both evil, in my view. Who's going to give us less evil? So I've made up my mind on that, what I'm going to do and who I'm going to vote for for the lesser of two evils. All right, let's pray and we'll be done, okay? Now, before we pray, you guys were all hoping I would tell you, wasn't it? But it's not, it's not my job to tell you that. It's my job to give you the principles. I've done that the best I can. And now you're going to have to make a choice about who to vote for in November, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, we come to you at a time in our nation's history that is unprecedented, at least in our lifetimes and perhaps in the history of our country. The choices that we have for our nation's highest office are not worthy of the office. And I've never had that in my lifetime. And yet, Lord... Uh, I am reminded, as we've been reminded this morning, that they are not the ultimate power, that you are, and that nothing changes there come November. And so, Lord, comfort my heart and comfort the hearts of your people with that reminder. And, Lord, with this reminder as well, that you used Balaam, that you can use anyone and anything to accomplish your purposes, that The Lord Jesus came when Caesar Augustus was on the throne. And when Caesar Augustus issued a decree that all the world should be, a census should be taken for taxing purposes. And yet he was doing your bidding, not his. Lord Alexander the Great was doing his bidding in conquering worlds at lightning speed. And yet, unbeknownst to him, he was fulfilling prophecy from the prophet Ezekiel. Lord, as Hitler did his murderous work in World War II, he was creating the dress rehearsal that you are controlling for the events that will ultimately, in your timing, someday bring about what your word speaks of in the end times. And so, Lord, all of these people, and they are all people who don't know you, They're all secular rulers who are ruling for themselves and are in the moment and only believe they are doing what's best for them. Every one of them ultimately works for you. Help me to remember, help us to remember, everybody works for God. Even those who don't want to and don't know God. And so with that, help us to go with confidence, but prayerful that your moral will will be done even through immoral vessels. Lord, we ask you to grant us wisdom and we ask you to grant uh, grace to America and to your world through your common grace, but in particular through your special grace in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And we ask you, Lord, to do as your word says, allow us to have rulers who make it possible for us to lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and holiness. Because this is pleasing to God, our Savior, who would have all men to be saved. Help us to remember those priorities, that you are on the throne, and then grant us wisdom as we act. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.